going to ask you if you have your Bible to uh, open it up to the book of Romans. And we're in uh, Romans chapter 2, by the way. No shout out from the crowd for that? I'm like, come on. <laughs> Ten weeks in Romans chapter 1? All right. Okay, so we find our, ourselves in, in Romans chapter 2, and there's, a, there's an interesting transition that takes place. And here's why um, that song that we just sang was so important, and the attitude by which you come into it is so significant. Because Paul has made a transition in chapter 1. Begin noticing that he uses the word you in chapter 2. In chapter 1, it was they, themselves, those. The Bible is so much safer when it speaks in third-person terms, right? Because it's talking about other people. And so we find Paul doing things in Romans chapter 1 like, Professing themselves to become wise, they became fools. Themselves, they. And he uses it a lot through chapter 1. And it's so easy to look at they and forget about this one back here, you, yourself. So in chapter 2, in the very first verse, he uses you five times. Because it recognizes there's a capacity that each of us have to stop examining ourselves because we're so busy examining other people. And chapter two becomes about self-examination. So we've just invited God's word to speak. And I stand before you this morning as an individual who's watched people in the last two services be utterly broken because of how God's word speaks today. So be prepared because God says his word, it's, it, it's alive and it's active. It's like a sharp two-edged sword, meaning it probes like a scalpel. God's word's going to probe this morning. So I'm going to ask you, as I lead you in prayer to start this out, that you would just ask God to examine you and to help you examine yourself and I'm going to do the same. Just do it quietly in your seat, and then and I'll close out that time in, in verbal prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that whether someone's streaming the service live right now or sitting here in this auditorium or, or they're going to listen on iTunes later this week, that every one of us, when we utter that request, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to see things that we can't see on our own, you honor that and you respond to that. You respond to that every time. Because what we're asking, God, is that we would understand you better, that we would understand ourselves better. So examine us. We willingly ask that you would do what David cried for, that you would look upon our heart and see if there's any wicked way in us, anything that would keep us from being all that you intend us to be. We pray for this, and we pray for it seriously. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So how do we explain the status of things on this planet when we look at this globe and we see so much capacity, 
so much knowledge, so much information, so much technology, so much resources available to us. Yet also, at the same time as you survey this planet, you see so much anger and strife and so much slandering and what seems to be an absolute debasement of morality. How do we put those two pieces together and make sense of that? Doesn't it seem like the wrong is completely disproportionate to the capacity? Like people would look and say, we have so much available, can't we fix this? Somebody please hit the easy button. But no one does. The easy button can't be hit. At no period of time on planet Earth was there ever a time when the powers of human reasoning and intellect absolutely hit their apex as they did in the first century when Jesus walked this planet. First century Greek philosophy philosophy dominated the known world. Sure, Rome was in power. Rome ruled militarily. But Greek philosophical thinking dominated all of society, especially the writings of individuals like Socrates and Plato, and then during Paul's lifetime, one of his peers, Seneca. The powers of human intellect were absolutely unleashed, pondering, speculating, why am I here? What is my reason? Why do I exist? That's why Paul argued in chapter 1, as we saw, don't be so consumed with those vain speculations. Now, since many could not find answers to their reasoning and trying to get enough information to understand their existence, they decided, well, at the same time, if we can't find a reason for our purpose, let's go after pleasure. And if you've never studied the first century before, you need to do that because what humanity is capable of is measured in the first century. Free lifestyle choices absolutely reigned in the Roman Empire. Yet, as decadent in their moral behavior as they were, most individuals living at that period of time really considered themselves morally upright, as though they were good with God by their own gauge. What does that look like to be morally upright by your own gauge? Well, very quickly, we can think of somebody driving down the highway who's, who's driving way, way too fast. Speeding down the highway and then another guy blows on past him. Now that guy speeding past you is an absolute idiot for driving too fast, right? Okay, so by our own gauge, we say, that guy's a menace. And then you come up behind somebody who's driving way too slow and they're an absolute hazard to the highway. So by our own gauge, we determine whether or not someone is behaving properly or improperly. We put it through our grid. So let's transfer that over to church world. Let's use chapter 1, for example. Many moral people, moralists we'll call them, after reading about those who abandoned God in chapter 1, and you saw that huge list of the 21 monster things that Paul echoed out there for us to read through, After reading through that, most moralists will agree with Paul in chapter 1 and say, Amen, Paul. You go, man. Amen. They deserve God's judgment. Look at how they're living. Most individuals, when you press upon them and ask them about how they are living personally, will say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Not too proud of some of the things I've done, but at least I haven't done And they'll typically point at chapter 1 and the list of the 21 and say, I haven't done that. 
I'm not a Hitler after all, right? We have that gauge by which we determine who fits in and who doesn't. As we step into Romans chapter 2, you're going to find Paul begins doing something really remarkable. He begins echoing a truth that was taught by Jesus, which very few people ever stop to consider. And this truth was so revolutionary, no one had ever heard it before when Jesus first said it. And very few to this day can even grasp it. The weight of the statement by Jesus so rocked the world that most individuals will admit they cannot get their mind around it. Now, I'm surmising you're wondering, what in the world statement is Mark talking about? I'm not doing this to tease you. I'm just merely trying to set you up for the weight of the statement. Look with me on the screen at what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, in Romans chapter 2, Paul does something really interesting. He is actually picturing someone intervening with a counter-argument to the things that he's written to chapter 1. And the argument might sound like this from a moral person. Yep, that's perfectly true of mankind, Paul. You have identified it. I concur with your conclusions. But there are other people who deplore that kind of behavior just as much as you, and we don't need to be in relationship with God to deplore that kind of behavior. Seneca was such an individual. He wrote effectively about the depravity of man. He denounced hypocrisy. He encouraged self-evaluation on a daily basis. He ridiculed idolatry. This was an individual who identified himself as a moral guide in the first century. And so he assumed the role of morality and considered himself morally good. Do you have someone in your life today who thinks of themselves since they don't rob banks, they're good with God? I know a lot of individuals in my life like that. I'm I'm good with God. I didn't do that. I didn't commit that. I'm not that bad. And then Jesus' words begin echoing in our ears. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. See, Paul is picking up that baton of Jesus, and he runs with it to help us understand we have to humble ourselves before the living God because we have this propensity to judge other people. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2 now. Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. What same things? Well, he's obviously talking about chapter 1, right? The list of the big 21, those same things. Can you imagine in the first century, humans actually thought this way. In the first century, people believed this. If you do enough good things, God will let you into heaven one day. Can you imagine that humans would actually think that? If I just do enough of this, this, and this, then God's going to wink and he says, come on in. I can saunter up to the doors of heaven and say, aren't I a good guy? you got to open up the doors especially in the first century, the Jews thought that way, specifically because they're God's chosen people. And they believed that if they kept the law, 
and did enough good things that could earn God's favor. So Paul's really going to go after them later in chapter 2. We're not going to get there today. We're only going to get to verse 5. This world is ruled by individuals who believe if I do enough good things and I live morally upright, God's going to let me in one day. So what about that morally upright person in your life? We might even call them a religious person who's got a really, really strong sense of right and wrong. And they're leading what appears to be a really honorable life. Is Paul talking about them too? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, look with me on the screen at these three words when he says, every one of you. See, he's incorporating all the moralists, all those who think they're exempt from judgment just because they haven't dropped to the level of chapter 1's list of the big 21 sins. So the argument is really simple. You judge another person, you're condemning yourself. Now, how does that work? Just because I judge someone else, why does that mean that I'm condemned? Well, because obviously, you and I have an internal yardstick, right? We have this measuring rod by which we judge, meaning somehow we know truth, somehow we know right and wrong, so we have this internal mechanism called a conscience, and, and this conscience is pre-wired. It's our integrity gauge. Where did that come from? We're not going to get into that so much today, but we need to understand this person who thinks that way. We'll call them a complacent person, and a complacent person takes a position, and this is the position. God and I, we're like besties. He's my BFF. We're totally good. He sees all the good things I do, and when I stand before him one day, he's going to tell me all the good things I did and just say, come on in. And that's a complacent person. And in doing that, they make two very severe errors. They absolutely underestimate the magnitude of God's standard of righteousness. When I have conversations with someone who says to me, now, I'm, I'm just going to tell God one day, I, I've done this, this, and this, so therefore you've got to let me in. I've, I've been a good person. My immediate response, and you, you can use this too, my immediate response is this, like, how good do you have to be to stand before a holy God? That typically causes someone to recoil, like, whoa, no one's never asked me that before. Immediately, we recognize we fall short of God's goodness, so there's a severe mistake. Individuals underestimate the magnitude of God's standard of righteousness. Here's the other thing that's underestimated. They underestimate the enormous depth of their own sin. All humans share a common weakness. I know this for sure because I are one. I understand it. And here's the common weakness. We are really, really good at amplifying the faults of others while minimizing our own faults, right? Aren't we good at that? Really good at seeing the faults in other people. We can amplify them and point them out. But we're also really, really good at minimizing our own faults. This is why Jesus had to say this, Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck that is in your own brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You're going to find Jesus repeatedly, as you study his life, takes out the legs from under those I'm good with God crowd. So he said things like this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting into the kingdom of God. Why use them for the anti-measuring rod? 
Well, because they're self-sanctified. Because immediately upon hearing Jesus' words, they immediately conclude, what he said didn't apply to me because I'm good with God. I got this. This particular crowd needed to hear things in a really harsh way. So Jesus would say things like this. You guys, if you're lusting after a woman in your heart, it's just like committing adultery in the physical act. You're no better than that individual. And if you're insulting your brother, you're just as worthy as the punishment of death as someone who committed murder. Why would he use those kind of examples? Well, for instance, in the first century, many scribes and Pharisees who had legal jurisdiction, they had the authority, they would rewrite law in order to permit adultery. So what they would do is they would rewrite the divorce laws. And if they got tired of the, the, the young woman that they married as she aged, they would trade her in for a new model and rewrite the laws and rewrite the laws so that they could qualify and do adultery legally. That's why Jesus had to go after them. Going after them for the hypocrisy, the very things they accuse other people of, they were justifying for themselves. So verse 1 is just staging it. Verse 2 really steps it up a notch. Verse 2 says this, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, the the same things of chapter 1. Now he's used this word know, and in your notes this morning I put six Greek words. If you're new here, I don't normally give you six Greek words, but there's a reason I had to do it today because there's some phrases that needed to be captured here. This first word that he uses, this word know, it's oida, and, and it means to perceive something, but not just that. You're perceiving something that's commonly known. And he's saying there's something that's commonly known about God. What do we know about God? He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls because everything God does is right and true. Right, church? Everything God does is right and true by his nature. He's not capable of doing that which is unjust. So Psalms 9.8 echoes that. Look with me on the screen. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. And we know that. Paul just used that word, oida. He said, we know these things about God, but here's where the translation is lost. Even though we know that, most people believe, you know, everything's just going to work out in the end because I've been really, really good. And, and a good God is too good to send someone to hell. Of course, other than the really, really bad people, right? Right? And we have a mental list of the really bad people. It usually starts with Hitler and Stalin and then descends to the guy that cuts you off in traffic, right? Okay, we, we have a list in our mind of people who have done us wrong or who have done the world wrong. And, and those people, they deserve God's judgment. All that tells us is that mankind has this basic built-in knowledge of good and evil. So consequently, many people try to live by those moral standards. Some even profess to be Christian, Christ followers, because they're Americans. And they become incredibly hard to reach with the gospel because outwardly, they're moral. Outwardly, living to a set of high standards, really satisfied with their goodness. And they are so hard to reach with the news of Jesus. Problem is, we all have this distorted discernment factor. Our gauge is messed up. We'd like to think otherwise, but even the best of us cannot make an accurate evaluation of someone else's heart. For instance, 
I don't know that you're really a believer in Jesus Christ. You might tell me that you are, and likewise, you, me. You may not know. You may not know that I'm not just doing this perfunctory because it's my job. Scripture says you can tell by the fruit that a person produces whether or not they're a child of righteousness. Are they producing fruit in keeping with repentance? But just because we say it doesn't mean it's true. We don't have a good enough perspective gauge to evaluate someone else's heart, let alone just to make judgments randomly. But God, because he sees everything, his perspective is always perfect, right? It's always, it's never flawed. He sees everything. We only see tiny little parts. Let me back this up with scripture. Look on the screen. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That kind of verse makes you squirm in your seat, right? It's like, he sees everything? Yep. You mean like like everything? Yep. Like everything? God sees everything. So that means every sin everyone ever commits comes before God with no detail missing whatsoever. Now look with me on the screen again. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Uh, Typically, when people see things like that, they begin thinking, does that mean like on Judgment Day there's going to be this big giant movie screen and everything I've ever done is going to be put up there on the screen? Right? We think that, right? We'd like to think it's not going to be. But is is that going to be? Is that what that's saying there, that we're going to be exposed? Hear me on this not for believers in Jesus Christ, right? Because he says he remembers our sins no more. That's a great promise from God. As far as the east is from the west, I remember your sins no more. That just don't even remember them. God hits the erase button. I'm glad about that. I want to know that he doesn't remember my sins. I don't want them brought up because a righteous Jesus died for my sins. But for a fallen person, I know, I know you hang out with individuals who think this way. They're in, in my extended family. Here is the secret hope that God will one day judge by a lower standard than perfect truth. That's the secret hope. That God, who is right and who is just and who is true, will somehow judge by a lower standard than perfect truth. So Paul's argument is, man knows enough, he recognizes the ugliness of sin, but he hopes that God will judge in the same superficial way that society does. But we're just told that God doesn't look upon the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. That's just set up to verse 3. Verse 3 says this, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This word suppose is actually a mathematical word. It's the substitute for the word in the Greek language for calculation. So Paul's saying, do do you calculate, O man? Do do you add up with your calculator that you're going to get a pass? He's calling moralists out and saying, you're falsely calculating something. You're missing something in your calculations. 
Dr. Donald Barnhouse is a guy who lived in the 1950s and he's one of those old dead theologians I like to quote, but I wanted you to see the way he reinterpreted this verse. He said it this way, you dummy, do you really think that you found an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it? You don't have a ghost of a chance. I appreciate that, he's saying it straight, right? Just say it as it is. We are deceived if we think we're gonna escape the judgment of God. He's speaking specifically to these self-righteous individuals who judge and therefore they're bringing judgment upon themselves. So that's why Jesus had to speak so strongly to individuals who fall into this judgment pattern in their life, like the Pharisees and the scribes. He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You look really pretty on the outside. You dress nice. But there's death inside you. There's dead bones that are decaying. If you've not heard this before, maybe you're new to church. Maybe this is your first time going to church. Hear this. The only way to escape God's judgment is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. That's why he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The only way to escape God's judgment is to receive Jesus. So Paul brings us into verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? We are so accustomed to God's mercy, it is really easy to take it for granted. Even, even believers who find themselves stumbling into sin can identify with that statement. We are so accustomed to God's mercy, it is absolutely easy to take it for granted. Not realizing that we receive his good things all the time purely because of his patience. Dr. Matthew Henry, another dead theologian, I've got a few quotes for you this morning, this is another one. He lived in a period of time when he rightly surveyed human condition, I'm talking about even believers, and he said it this way, there is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. Just chew on that for a minute. Not talking about the things you find yourself stumbling into. Maybe you insulted somebody in the heat of a conversation and you lost control. That's not willful sin. It's still sin. But he's saying every willful sin exercises a contempt for the goodness of God. Why? Because every intentional sin takes God lightly. It presumes upon his grace. That's why Paul had to write things like, should we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid that we would ever act that way. So the reason I gave you so many Greek words this morning is because of these phrases he's listed in verse four. Think lightly, tolerance, patience, and you'll see them in rapid fire go up on the screen. I want you to understand why he used these phrases. Kataphroneo is the very first one that's used in this succession of phrases. And it means to underestimate the true value of something. Catrophoneo means to look down on something. And here's the implication as it relates to your relationship with God. There's a potential that we can disrespect that which God has given freely. Every single one of us have experienced the kindness of God, whether believer or non-believer. How do I know that? Well, here's a real simple example. On three... I'll count one, two, three, and let's all draw in a very big breath and fill our lungs. One, two, three. 
Job says your capacity to do that is a gift from God. Even the ability to put air in your lungs is an expression of God's kindness. So we see, do you think lightly of God's kindness? He uses the word tolerance nest. It's this word anoche. And it literally means self-restraint or to hold something back. Paul has incorporated a military term here. When warring nations came against each other, there were times when it was necessary to call a cessation of hostilities. For whatever reason, there was a truce called. And he's used this word deliberately here. Are you thinking lightly? Are you looking down upon and despising God's tolerance? What is God's tolerance? God's tolerance with man is this divine truce that he voluntarily proclaimed way back at the fall of man in the Garden of Eden when man rebelled against God and chose sin over God. And God immediately called a truce. He could have carried out wrath in that moment. Could have destroyed Adam and Eve and said, I'm done with humanity. It's over. But he didn't. He called a cessation of hostilities. He called a truce. Not forever, but for a limited time. In patience he did this. That's the third word that's used here. And this word, the big $10 Greek word, it literally means to be long-suffering. And we see God using this as a descriptor of himself. You might remember this setting. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's done everything that God has asked him to do. And he, he says to God, he presents his case, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I have even stood before Pharaoh and I have led the people through the Red Sea out into this wilderness. Will you do one thing for me? I want to see you. God's response to him is, no man can see me and live, Moses. You would be consumed. But I will pass before you and when I pass before you, I will declare something about myself. Look what he declared, Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. When Paul uses this word makrothomia, this last Greek word that we looked at, he understands it's another military term. When powerful rulers had the upper hand against an enemy, against a nation by which they could destroy and wipe them out, or against a criminal who was rightly convicted, they could practice macrothomia in tolerance and in patience, withhold from them that which is justly deserved. So what are we seeing here? In kindness, we're seeing the benefits that God gives. In tolerance, we see the judgment he withholds. And in patience, we see the duration of it. Why does he do that? Because he's not willing that any would perish, right, church? He's not willing that anyone would perish. That's what Scripture says, 2 Peter 3, 9. He's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, for long periods of time, the Lord God is extremely patient. But many people miss that. Instead of seeing his provision and his patience, they suggest he's unloving. Why would he let certain things happen? How could he allow those people in Italy to die this week? Why would he let my ankle be broken and I'm laid up and I can't work? 
Why does he let those people continue to suffer in poverty? How is that a good God? And in that very action, they judge God, which is never a good thing, right? You don't want to find yourself judging God. You have to do it from a distorted human perspective, completely missing God's goodness and his patience and his mercy. If you consider yourself a Bible person, you'll immediately identify with this. Before destroying the world with a worldwide flood, God gave Noah instructions. Noah, you're going to build an ark. Now, we think modern-day construction, but it took 120 years for Noah to build the ark. According to 2 Peter, what happened during those 120 years is that Noah was proclaiming repentance. Turn from your ways back to God because there is judgment coming. For 800 years, God told Israel, you keep going whoring after other nations, after their God, small g, and I will send you out and I will destroy you and you will go into captivity. 800 years, God showed patience. Why does he do that? The goal, Paul says it's right there in verse 4, the goal is the kindness of God is leading you to repentance. It's the purpose of God's kindness, right? To convict us of sin and it leads to repentance. I'm guessing if you're a church person, you've, you've heard the word repentance until you're blue in the face, right? We're so familiar with it, we can tune it out in a moment, if you're new to church, you might be thinking, what, what is he talking about? What's that word? Here's a very simple way to remember this word repentance. What does it mean? In spiritual terms, it literally means changing your mind about sin. You may have something in your life that you really, really love that is sinful. Something you feel like you just can't give up. And, and, you, and maybe you've justified in your mind thinking God understands but you've attached yourself to something that you really, really love and that it's sinful. If you come to the conclusion that God has brought conviction upon you about that sin and you need to surrender it, you abandon that sin in favor of turning to God. That's repentance. That in spiritual terms, you're changing your mind about sin and turning to God for forgiveness. But scripture is really, really clear. This is a limited offer, a time-limited, literally time-limited author offer. It, it's available to you only during your lifetime. Once the threshold is crossed, it's too late. It's only available until the inevitable, the inevitable time of judgment, the day of wrath. Look with me at verse 5. This is our last verse for today. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, the stubborn, unrepentant heart, it does something. It's presuming upon God's patience. So Paul says, you're storing up wrath for yourself, man. This word stubbornness is actually translated over into the medical community today. But in the first century, they understood it a little bit differently. I want you to see this is our last Greek word for today, and it's this, this word scalarotes. And it means actually calluses. So some picture somebody out working in the field, and, and they've got a hoe, and they've been working on their farm crops, and at the end of the day, they build up all these calluses. Well, we took this term over and translated it into the medical community. And because we have cardiologists who attend here, I've been able to validate this term with them. This word scalartes was translated over to arterial sclerosis, a hardening 
of the flesh around the heart, hardening of the arteries. So God has given us a modern-day picture of what it looks like when he looks at the heart, the physical hardening, the callousness of the arteries. God gives us a picture of the spiritual heart. Someone who becomes unresponsive to God's activities, God calling them to repentance, can come to this place where ultimately they find themselves just toying with God. Some of you need to pray right at this moment, God, keep me from ever going there. Keep me from ever getting to that place where I've got this callousness against your activity in my life. I had to have that conversation, and it was a very hard conversation with a guy who's in his mid-20s this week, who for over a year has been investigating the claims of God. But every time we get into a conversation where it gets uncomfortable, pushes back and says, you know what, I just need a little more information. I need a little more time. I need to find out a little bit more to help me with this. And I finally, just probably in exasperation, finally said to him, you are toying with God, man. Satan is using that in your life to keep you from coming into the kingdom of God, and he will hold you accountable for the information you have available to you. Uh, please don't let that ever keep you from coming to talk to me, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't normally do that, but in that case, you know, I'd, I'd spend so much time in trying to help this person work through Scripture. But sometimes you just got to say it like it is. We can toy with God. And when we refuse this forgiveness that he's brought us through Jesus, that's like this, that's the worst sin of all. Hebrews speaks to this hardening. It says in Hebrews 4, 7, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. See, we can magnify the guilt by rejecting God's goodness. It's an abuse of God's mercy. That's why Paul can say in verse 5, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Stop toying with God. Here's another verse to amplify that, Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's a scary verse, isn't it? That someone can get to the place where they've rejected it so long. God said, there's nothing left. What am I going to do for you? I've already given you what I got to give you, and you've rejected it. Last quote for today, and, and many of you know that I love Charles Simeon, another old dead theologian, right? And, and he's, he was studying this passage, and he came up with this thought. If Christ had not come and spoken unto us, we had not sin. But now we have no cloak for our sin. That's a beautiful word picture. Because we can picture that with a cloak, you cover things over, try and hide them. But Jesus came and we have no cloak for that. He's just echoing what Jesus said in John 15. Look with me on the screen. John 15, 22, Jesus' own words, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have guilt, but now they have no excuse for their sin. So the knowledge of Jesus makes you and I absolutely inexcusable. We got this great knowledge of God's truth, so it makes us really accountable. You've got to do something with it. So just think back to where we started this morning. We're about done. If you survey this planet and you see this brokenness and you see all this capacity, you can't make sense of it, and you wonder why does evil seem to be rampant? And you wonder at this imbalance and this disparity. Here's what Romans 2 is doing for you. 
Romans 2 is telling us to look internally first. You want to deal with the evil outside? You want to deal with the disparity in this world? God says, look at your own heart first. Where am I at with God? Because God wants us to deal with evil, and the best place to begin with it is a self-examination. And I have to ask this question. I've asked it in the other services. This is where some people really broke it. Do you personally even have salvation through Jesus Christ yet? And I need you to ponder that. Have I ever committed my life to Jesus Christ? The reality is no one can understand salvation apart from grasping this truth that Paul's trying to help us understand. We all are guilty, right? We are. The difference between a Christian and a non-believer is we've been forgiven of our guilt. I heard one amen on that one. I mean, come on, you guys. We've been forgiven. We're all guilty. We are totally, totally, utterly unable to bring ourselves up to God's standard of righteousness. No one gets a pass. I close with this illustration. In, in North America, it was common for tribal groups, so I'm talking about many hundreds of years ago, the Native Americans to this continent to travel the continent looking for prime hunting land. The same is true in Russia. Nomadic tribes, much like the American Indian, nomadic tribes traveled across Russia looking for prime hunting land. And the most powerful tribes got the choicest land. There was one particular chief who was incredibly powerful, not only physically, but in his personality. He was greatly entrusted with power by a very large tribe because he was just and he was righteous in his decisions. This same chief became aware that there was thievery going on in his tribe. And when it was discovered that there was theft taking place on a regular basis, he announced to the tribe that when the thief is caught, not if the thief is caught, but when the thief is caught, that individual will suffer ten lashes by the tribal whipmaster, like you might think of a sheriff or a marshal today. Over a period of time, the thieves continued to steal and were not caught. And so the chief came back before the tribe and said to the tribe, for every week that goes by, without the thief coming forward and in turning themselves in, the punishment will increase by ten lashes. Eventually it got to the point where 40 lashes was pronounced by this wise, powerful chief. Everyone in horror recoiled, recognizing that someone within their tribe was going to suffer capital punishment and be put to death because no one could withstand 40 lashes to their bare back, except for perhaps the chief because he was the most powerful one among them. To the horror of the tribe, it was discovered that the thief was the chief's own aged mother who had been pilfering the village. And immediately, the tribe went into discussions trying to figure out, what is he going to do? He's righteous and just, but he obviously loves his mother. How will he respond to this situation? Will he act in his integrity and true to his integrity? 
The chief sentenced his mother to 40 lashes and they fixed her to the whipping post. And as the tribal whip master raised his whip to begin beating the woman, the chief stripped himself of his clothing and wrapped his body around his mother and took the beating for her himself. Because as the powerful chief, he was willing and able to sustain the blows that would come upon him. The punishment was served. The mother was spared. Justice was carried out. You immediately can translate that image over to what Jesus did for us, can't you, church? Our chief took the whip upon himself for us. Do we deserve the punishment? Yep, we're all guilty. Should justice be carried out? Absolutely. God's a righteous judge. He has the right to do it. But our chief stepped in and took the blows upon himself for us. We recognize this morning what we're talking about is not a need for more information. We have this great knowledge of Jesus' substitutionary death. It's available. Everybody can hear it. And we're accountable as a result of it. So being in an eternal loving relationship with a forgiving God does not require more information. It doesn't require more technology. It requires a decision, a decision everybody has to render. Some of you need to do business with God today. Your heart's perhaps been pricked over something you heard. Perhaps you found yourself as a person who's been judging other people, and immediately you feel like, Magnifying glass has been put on you, and you've got to deal with that. I'm going to allow some quiet time before we dismiss just for you to talk to the Heavenly Father, to go before him and say, where, where am I at on this? How do you want me to respond to this? But hear this before you do that. Bigger than that even. There's a very good chance that there's individuals who have never surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and need to start there. So after we allow for a little quiet time for you to pray about where you're at in relationship with God, I'm going to lead those who need to pray for forgiveness and a relationship with Jesus to begin. I'm going to take that opportunity. So let's all just close our eyes and talk to the Father right now. Lord God, we recognize that you can tenderize our hearts in ways that we can't even do ourselves for ourselves. And I believe that you've tenderized hearts this morning. We invited the work of your Holy Spirit. We invited your word to speak, to wash down upon us like rain, giving us eyes to see, 
And Father, I believe that you have prodded individuals to deal with you on something we've been holding on to. And it's between you and us personally. In that same way, Father, I recognize that your spirit may have moved upon individuals who who identify that they have never received what you give so freely in Jesus Christ and that you have offered a brand new beginning. So I speak to those people right now, Father, and I ask that you would continue to prod their hearts. If you find yourself in the place, and I'm just going to ask for you to keep your head down and your eyes closed, if you find yourself in that place where you have never professed Jesus as your Savior and you want the forgiveness that He offers and you want eternal life, I'm going to ask you just to pray these words back to the Father. It's a very, very simple prayer. Lord God, I recognize that I'm a sinner. And I know that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. I am asking for forgiveness of my sin. I am asking for a brand new beginning. I want eternal life with you. And and say this to the Father. I believe that Jesus died for me and that you raised him again. Amen. You may think that what I just asked people to pray was very, very simple. It is. This is what Scripture says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's pretty simple, right? That's what God calls us to. If you dealt with that issue and you want to talk to me after the service, I promise it'd be just my honor to do that. I'd be thrilled to encourage you. If you don't have time for that right now, we have some free Bibles in the back and inserted in those Bibles are a little envelope that says, what do I do next or next steps? Grab one of those on your way out. We'd love to encourage you that way. When you get a chance, let's connect over that issue. In the meantime, church, I want to encourage you to Walk boldly in this forgiveness that God has given us. We, we have been forgiven, right, New Hope? So we are, we are not judged by God because we have Jesus as our righteous, righteous high priest who interceded for us. Praise him for that today. Don't let this quickly escape from your mind and have a great week.